Well, last week we uh, began talking about a three-week series that, that we're working through kind of the church and, and, and what the purpose of what we're doing here on Sundays and throughout the week. And essentially, um, wanted to again remind you that it is not necessarily what our little extension, Revolution 22, is doing, but, but Big C Church, what God calls all of his churches to. So, so as we talk about what we're doing and what we're trying to do, just know that any, any Jesus-believing, Bible-preaching church is going to say the same thing. There's nothing original in here. We aren't like having some epiphany of, oh, wow, look at how great we are, but, but just that we're striving to be um, the community that God called us. And last week, we talked specifically about the church and how the church is not an organization or building the church as a people, and that that means that our covenant relationship with God, our relationship to who Jesus is and, and through him, actually is tied and contingent and, and relies on the relationships of one another, that our covenant is together. And this week, we're talking about um, the 22 in Revolution 22. It's the, it's the why we put that there. It's love God and love others, and that's essentially what we've done. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 22. If you don't, the ushers will uh, pass you one. You guys are welcome. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that as well. Um, a little context or a little background on this text. This is near the end of Jesus' time on earth, and so this is actually the week before he is uh, he's crucified. And, and the day before this happens, he had just gone into the, the temple, and he had turned over all the tables. This is where people love to say, I can get mad because they saw Jesus get mad. And he, he's, he's obliterating all the people that are selling stuff in the temple. And actually, he's, it's their most lucrative time when, when, when everyone was coming to the temple to make money. This is like the time where this was, this was like in retail, this was Christmas. You know, this is when everyone came to buy stuff. So, so he's already making a lot of enemies. He's made enemies amongst the, uh, the Pharisees and a bunch of other people. And he leaves, and he, this is also where he, he curses the fig tree, and he heals some blind person and, 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 the, and, and sick and then he comes back the very next day, and he's confronted by these religious leaders. Now, these religious leaders, there's different groups of them. You hear Pharisees or Sadducees or scribes or, or a number of different ones, and some of them would overlap into what they were. But, but essentially what they were trying to do is they, were, they so hated Jesus. They so hated him that they were trying to discredit him in some way to two groups. First off, they were trying to discredit him to Rome. Because if he could somehow defile the name of Rome, if he could somehow contrast the name of Rome, then the Romans, Romans would, would crucify him, and it would be good, and everything would be over. And the other, one, the other group of people is Jesus had this massive following in the Jewish people, and they were following him, following him. And a lot of times, the Pharisees and the religious leaders would say that he was contradicting Moses. Now, Moses was, if you were a Jewish person, Moses was like the highest, highest of Jews. He was, he was like the man. He was what everyone wanted to be like. And so, so they were saying if he could discredit Moses, then all the Jewish people would then hate him and want him to be killed as well. And so what these three tests, these three questions are, are to test him and in, in, in to try and get him in a spot where he can, he can basically make himself in trouble by one or two or both of the people groups. And the first one was the taxes and do you pay? And, and then the second one was this, this, <laughs> this ludicrous idea of resurrection. And, and Jesus basically silences all these people. And he, he kills all of them. And, and we get to this text where it's the two greatest things that we can do, the, the, the biggest commandments. And if we're going to be a church, if we're going to be a, a people that is on mission for him, then it probably makes sense for you and I to live out the two greatest commandments. It probably makes sense that that would be what we strive to do. Now, the, the problem is, is that at this time, what they're doing is there were 613 laws that, 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 that were going on. And so, and a lot of times they would argue at what was a light law and a heavy law. There were like 200 and something that were equated to different body part laws, and then there were 365 that would make up every day of the, the, of the week law or the every day of the year law. And they would spend time figuring out which ones are light and which ones are heavy, which ones are ones that we really have to do and which ones are ones that we don't really have to do. And, and 
all these 600 were because they were so afraid of messing up with the 10 that they put all these rules around it and all these laws around it so that they would never come close to the 10 and failing those 10 that Moses first gave to them. And so they come to this text, and, and what I wrestle with in this text and what I've wrestled with over and over and over again trying to talk about this text is, is, is something as, as big as love God. And as you look at it, I don't, I don't even know where to go. Like, I'd love to get really pragmatic and say, okay, here's the 17 steps on how to love God, and here's what we can do. But in the essence, like, if I were to go there, we'd be a bunch of legalistic people striving to work for our salvation or striving to work at it. And I'm not saying that you can't love God and put effort into it, but, but there's an aspect of this that realistically, you and I, we fail at this day in and day out. And so as I look at what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you're, if you're a normal person, shy of, of the, the most amount of pride you can possibly have, you're going to say, I fail God at one or all of these areas every single day. And so as I get ready to, to talk about this and we turn to this text, I just want to encourage you, if you can, just stay tuned in until the very end. Because I think there's a story that will really, really help all of us understand a little bit better what it means to love God. You might feel a little beat up in the middle, but just, just stay till the end, Okay. Matthew 22, um, we're going to read 37 and 38 is all. So again, this is the, the last one. Now, it's, it's key to know this. This says a lawyer is coming up. And this is the only time Matthew uses this word for a scribe. Now, scribes were, 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 were authority of the law. They, they translated the law. They knew the law. They were the people that were essentially changing and rewriting the law. But he uses lawyer this time. And I think it's important because it means an expert of the law. So this guy is, is apparently like if scribes are, are awesome and they know the law, this guy like really knows it. And so he's the one that comes. And you got to know that he approaches Jesus not in a, in a complete negative way. I think he actually approaches him in a, I kind of want to know what this guy's going to say. Like if he's a really good student and he's, he's been spending all his time studying, Jesus has been saying some really radical things and, and a lot of them have been right in line. And so he's in a way more curious but also coming to test him. So we know that this is still a test to try and get him in trouble. Okay, and so he asked him, which are the two, what is the greatest commandment ever? And he's, again, he's trying to get Jesus to say something to discredit Moses. And then all the Jews would be mad at him and then everyone would be willing to crucify him right at that moment and it, was, it would be done. And so he says, what's the greatest commandment? It's a, it's a trap. And Jesus answers it um, in 20, what did I say? 37. 37. And he said to him, this is Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then it talks about the second, and we'll talk about that next week. And so he says, look, you should love the Lord your God. And, and again, he, he, he commands. You shall is a command. You shall is I command you to love God. He's quoting Moses. The only word he changes mind in place of might, and that, I think, is similarly the same thing. We'll talk about that in a second. But he's commanding, and he uses the Hebrew word love, which is essentially an action. It is, it is, um, it is a primary the love of will, the love of mind, love of action, rather than just a love of feeling. So he's, he's, he's making a love that has logic to it, a love that is unconditional, a love that is, is all-encompassing, okay? And he says it's the highest kind of love. This love of dedication and commitment, the love that says it's right and noble no matter what I feel. And it's key because he says with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength that we see in Mark and Luke. And we see that and he's, I think the with all is an emphasis on each part. He's spreading it out in a way of saying, look, each of these are key to loving God. 
And the, we, we go on further to see that the lawyer says, well, what you say is, is right. You know, you're, you're right. And he, they're silenced. And no one questions him again after that point. So let's look at each of these things. Heart. He says, love the Lord with all your heart. Now, you and I, we, I love you with all my heart. And we kind of, we throw that out in a feeling. Um, normally in the New Testament, heart means the center of who we are. It's kind of everything. But I think that would be a little redundant here. So this heart probably means more of an uprightness or a true-heartedness almost like a command of our emotional nature, which it seems a little weird, um, but he says it's, it's a love of him where we fix our affections completely on him. See, our affections completely on him. Now, this doesn't, if you're married, it, well, maybe if you haven't been married for a long time, but if you're, if you're freshly married, right, your, your affections are completely on your spouse. Everything's there. Maybe you're engaged and you're just like, oh, I just can't help it, and you're fixated. Everything is around that person. And that's the love with your heart he's talking about here is that, that we have, that nothing else, we will give up, we will hold nothing dear at the cost of not loving him with all our heart. So our affection, our emotion, everything we have is on him. And then the second one is soul. He uses the word soul and this is, this is or your life. Essentially meaning your life. Now for most of us as Christians here today, we're not really, I mean the most dangerous thing we did was walk across construction, right? Like you might, you might have gotten hurt by a tractor, but, but to know like you're going to die for, for Jesus today in America is pretty slim to none. There are, there are brothers and sisters around the world, that, that is an absolute reality. But for us, it, it's essentially, are you willing to give your life for God? And so maybe the way I could say it today is, is maybe what a more reality for us would be give of your reputation, you know, your reputation to anyone doesn't matter. Your identity is in Christ. And so you die to self in the sense that it does not matter what people do or don't say. You, you take people-pleasing out of your life. You still love people, but you take people-pleasing out of your life and you rest in your identity in Christ. Right? He is, he is, he is all. He is everything. And then he says, mine. Now again, I don't think Jesus was misquoting Deuteronomy or Moses, but might and mine can be pretty used used synonymously. Essentially what this does is it means that it consumes all our thoughts. And if you think about it, if you've ever had anyone talk about blind faith, loving God with all your mind adds intelligence to this, right? It's not just some, oh, I just love him and that's how it works. It actually, it actually means to think clearly or truthfully about him. Not just giving him our thoughts, but literally like 2 Corinthians 10, 5 says, taking every thought captive. Right? We rest our minds on him. We fixate our thoughts on him. Anything we study or read, we look to bring it to the glory of him. We fixate on that. Have you, I mean, maybe the best way to describe this is if you were getting ready for college and you're trying to figure out where to go or, or grad school or whatever it is, you've kind of, you're putting your thoughts and you're putting your energy and your, your mind at, what do I need to have in place and all these things to make it happen. You're fixated on making that happen. This is that everything, our mind is fixated on loving God everything we have. Our, our, we can't go a day, a thought, without figuring out how can I fix my mind on him. And then the gospel of Luke and Mark adds strength. And that essentially or all of our energy, fervently doing this. It's, it seems a little redundant, and I think that's maybe why um, Matthew and Luke, or Matthew and uh, John skip it, but it's exerting all the power of the body to the service of God. Meaning that all that we have, all that we are physically is given to that. And when I look at those commands to love God, and I say, okay, guys, go. Love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Just go do it. Now love him. 
And all of us in this room at one point or another goes, man, I suck at that. I, I can't do that. I fail at all those all single that I'm not even sure I made it today at not failing one of these. And we're just beginning. So what does it really mean to love God? How do we truly love God? How do we love the God that created us? How do we love the God that, that knows every single thing about us? The ugly and the good and the nasty and the horrible. He knows what's to come. How do we love that God? And it's, it's funny because it, it's kind of a, a, a circle. But if you look at um, um, 1 John 5, 3, it says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, we spent time talking about that back in 1 John. But essentially, he's saying, to love God, we keep his commandments. So that means that we live within the boundaries that he is asking of us, that he has set for us. And that's a way to love him. And one of his commands is to love him. So we, we love him because he commanded us, but then we are loving him by keeping his commands. It seems almost like this, this sick circle. It's like, God, what are you doing here? How am I going to love you if you just say keep my commands, but yet all this time I'm going to spend all this energy trying to figure out how to love you with all my heart when I don't even know how to, how to even focus half the time. But he says, this is it. If you want to you do it, and it's not burdensome. It's, it's not a heavy load, which is... Again, we talked about that in First John. The psalmist says that he knit us together in our mother's womb. So then, in essence, what it says is that he knows you, he knows me better than any other person ever will. He knows you better than anything. He knows you so well that it's almost disgusting at times. Right? We can't hide anything. He knows every single aspect of us. So if that's the case, then there's a reason why he's calling us to love him. In fact, John 15, 10 through 11 says, if you keep my commandments, there it is again, you will abide or remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love or abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy, your joy may be full. So he ties this idea that when we actually keep his commandments, which is loving God and loving others, when we actually do what he asks of us, there's some kind of joy in us that is completely full. And I'd love to say that that's what this is. That's why we're called to love, because God knows us, and he knows what will make us happy, and he knows what will bring not a, a cheap happy, but a true joy. But if we stop there, then we make this entire book about us. Like, like loving God is about us so that we can have joy. No, I think that's a promise but this is not about us. This is about Christ and what he is doing and what he has done and bringing more glory to God. That is what our life is about. So why then does God command us to love him? And then, okay, if he commands us to love, how can you and I, who are imperfect, actually love a perfect God? And this is what I've wrestled with over and over and over again. Now I'm gonna get a little pragmatic, little Okay, so we're going to give you a couple ideas of how this can be done, but I want to be really, really clear on this. None of this can be done without first what he has done. Okay, so, so we are incapable of loving God. It is impossible for you and I to love God without him first loving us. Okay, you've got to keep that at the, at the front and center. See, God the creator, the one that knows you and I better than anyone, the one who, who loves you and I more than anyone ever could, commands us to love him, promises that a byproduct of that love is a joy. Now, we can stop there. A lot of us are doing things in this world to try and find joy. And you just, you need to kind of stop. Don't collect $200. Go back to the first thing, right? Like you got to realize that, that, that only everlasting joy 
an inexpressible joy only comes from him, not anything in this world. Okay, so assuming you got that, he commands us to love, we love by following his commands and remain in his love by keeping his commands, which brings true everlasting joy. So because of his love for me, because of what he has done for me, now I can love. Does that make sense? So, so because what he first did for me, I can love. So he loves me perfectly so that I can love him imperfectly. That's what this is about. Now, not in some obligatory way, not like, oh, I have to love you because you love me, God. No, 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 that's not the point of that. The point is that you and I are incapable of loving him if he hadn't first loved us. And because he loved us perfectly, he can accept our love imperfectly. See, when you've been loved by someone that knows every single ugly thing about you, and I mean an unconditional love, not some cheap, fake lust, I mean a love that changes everything that you are, when you've been loved in that way, it's a lot easier to love back. Again, and it's not, I, I, please hear me, it's not an obligatory way. He loved us in a sacrificial way so that we could be in God's presence for an eternity. So then how do we love him today? A way that we could effectively love God in all these ways. First, let's look at Galatians 5, through 25. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the key to you and I loving God is to live and keep in step by the Spirit. So this is, this is important. Some of you right now, you have not surrendered your life to Jesus or you've surrendered it to some version of him. It's Jesus plus, or it's some version of I just go to church, so then I call myself a Christian. Well, let me, let me just, let me read, save you to the end. You are incapable and will never love God apart from his spirit. You, you are incapable of it. It can't happen. You're doing it all in your own strength, and it's exhausting, and it's tiring, and you're always feeling like you're running out of energy, and you can't do it. So stop trying. Stop trying. Now, now this isn't, an issue of not doing it. Philippians 2 tells us to work out our salvation, so there's a, there's a step in this. But apart from the Spirit of God, you are incapable of doing it. So some of you right now, you can't live in step with the Spirit because the Spirit is not dwelling inside of you. The Bible teaches that when we surrender our life to the work of Jesus Christ, what He did, that His Spirit takes up residence inside of us, and I now live by that Spirit, not my old flesh, so a couple ways to help us. The first thing is we have to acknowledge that. You have to be willing to acknowledge that you are incapable, incapable of doing any good apart from Christ. If you're not willing to acknowledge that, if you think, well, you know, not any good, and you want to argue that, you want to go, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, or I've met some really good people, you're, you're, you're always missing it. You're missing it because, because apart from Christ, we're incapable of it. In fact, Romans 7, 18 says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is the apostle Paul who's done lots of good. That is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry out. Jesus said in 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. All we can do is sin without him. So the first step of walking by the Spirit, the first step of actually loving God is admitting this fact that we are incapable of doing anything and letting it have its devastating effect on yours and my pride and allowing God to work on it. We can't do anything pleasing to God 
without the enablement and the walking of his spirit first. So it takes acknowledging that we're incapable of good. Now this is key because some of us right now are gonna work so hard at loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're gonna just work, 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 and we're gonna be exhausted, and we're doing it on our own, apart from his spirit. You're incapable, it's exhausting. Another aspect of this is, is that since it's promised in Ezekiel 36, seven that God will put a new heart, a new spirit within us, we need to pray for that. Some of us, we've spent so much time around church that we just think because of proximity, we belong. Because my parents believed, well, I must believe. And we've never truly surrendered our life to him. We've never actually prayed, God, would you please, Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and put a new and right spirit within me. We've never actually truly prayed for that. We've never really believed that, that that's actually something that we can individually have. A, th a third part of this is trust. If we're going to walk by faith, if we're going to walk by faith, we actually have to trust. We have to believe that since we can, we have come under his graciousness of God's spirit, sin no longer has any power over us. Now this is key. This is key because there's a lot of us in here that are struggling with sin and we, we know like, hey, I, I surrender, I believe in Jesus, I, I love him, but man, I am struggling. Sin has no power. There can be moments of weakness. There can be struggle. In fact, if we go back to next, last week, if you're isolated, I guarantee you're even weaker. But sin has lost its power. We have to trust that the spirit that God has placed inside of us is stronger than anything of this world. It's more powerful than anything in this world. If you are a child of God, you have a solid and unshakable promise that God will give you victory over the powerful desires of our flesh. A quick side note about that. I, I, I want to be careful because some of you are going, man, I've been fighting and fighting and fighting, but it's not happening. I, I think we need to remember that God's timing is not our timing. I think that we need to understand that, that, that we want immediate and, and God sees a lot bigger picture than you and I. And so just because maybe maybe you haven't found freedom or someone gets freedom overnight and others don't get freedom for, for years. God is, is still sovereign in that and we still have to trust in that. That's why we trust. And then the fourth one, the fourth idea of, of what it means to actually love God or how we do this by the Spirit is by walking by the Spirit. See, after you've acknowledged your helplessness without Him, you've prayed for His work and you trust that what you pray is truly there, then it's act on it. Now it's time to move on it. Now notice we didn't start here because see the problem is, is you and I love checklists. We love things to do for God real quick. And if I just started here and not, don't acknowledge, just start doing good, change who you are on the outside, fix it all up, man, we'd be hollow inside. We'd be hollow. Only when we act with the right order of spiritual preparation will we be able to say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God, which is always with me. See, all our effort to do what is right is the work of God Almighty in us. 1 Peter 4.11 says that so we can do everything for his glory. For his glory, not ours. So that means that we don't look at, well, hey, look what I did. I'm so cool. See, loving God wouldn't happen if it, if it was not for him opening our eyes and giving us his spirit. This isn't an excuse to be lazy. 
Again, like I said, you have to act, and Philippians 2 told us to work out our salvation, meaning that there is effort in this. James 2 says that believing isn't enough. Even the, even the, even the, de- uh, the demons believe, but don't have the Spirit of God in them. So there is a work to this. There's a work to this. There's an effort of this. See, God has in his will required us to live by his spirit, to walk in the spirit, and then and only then will we succeed at loving him. Which again, if we go back to the beginning, if we're walking in spirit, if, if, if he's truly alive in us, then our greatest desire in life is to love him. Our greatest desire in life is to love him. And that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy or look for, forward to things or love our, our wife or our kids, but they cannot take place of him. Our greatest desire, all of our effort is to love him. So there you go. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do it. Have fun. Walk by the Spirit. Enjoy. Everything's good to go. I wanted to end with another story because I feel like a lot of times, and again, I wrestle with this because some of you really need the steps. You need to go, okay, I need to start acting. I need to pray. I need to trust. I need to acknowledge those things. And those are good. And again, like I said, without the Spirit, we can't do it. But some of us, let's be honest, some of us really wrestle with, man, I'm just not sure that loving God really is that important. And now none of us would say that. But if we looked at our life, that's kind of what it would show. And so I want to take you to another story. It's, it's actually a story, it's a teaching of Jesus in Luke. If you want to turn there with me, you can. It's Luke, the story comes from Luke 7, um, 36 through 50. I'm just going to read a section of it. Um, let's set this up real quick. So, so Jesus is, is becoming the man, and the Pharisees are like, whoa, this guy's pretty cool. I should spend some time with him. And so Simon, one of the Pharisees, says, hey, come eat with me. And so the story is that he comes in to eat with the Pharisee in this town. And it, what was customary in that time, because they all wore sandals and it was dusty, you would, when someone came in to eat with you, you would offer them some, some ointment or some oils to clean their hands, and, and you'd offer them a basin to wash their feet, or there would be a servant at the house that would do it. And that was a customary thing. That was a normal thing. That was like knocking at a door before just walking in. It was, it was that common in their time. And, and Jesus comes in, and he, he doesn't really, you know, he, he just comes in. No one does anything. He just kind of sits down and starts eating. And, and the story unfolds where this, this, this woman, we, we, they call her a sinner. All right? we, don't, we don't know what her sin was, but apparently her sin was public enough that everyone in the town knew it. Okay? She was one of those people, right? And so they all knew who she was, and they all knew that she was a sinner. And, and Jesus is down at the table eating, and what happens is she comes in, and she, she hears that he's there, and she walks into a Pharisee's home. Now, just hear this. She was identified as a sinner. So, so Pharisees, religious people, would have, would have held themselves at a massive di- distance from her. Okay, so she walks into Simon's house. She steps into his house. A, a sinner steps into a Pharisee's house. And the very first thing that she does, she, she walks in there because she hears about Jesus being there. And she comes in behind him. And you've got to picture this. So he's, he's sitting at a table. She's behind him. Okay, and she just starts weeping and crying. She uses her tears to start cleaning his feet. And she's wiping her hair to dry it off. And she spends this time, and she's using ointment, expensive ointment. And honestly, this was a fairly seductive thing to do. Okay, and the Pharisees are having this, we have this, this verbal thing where they're thinking if he truly was a prophet, because at this point they had no idea what he was or who he was. They were just trying to figure him out. If he truly was a prophet, he would know who's touching him right now, and he would run. He would push, he would kick, he would separate himself, but he's allowing it to happen. And she sits there and kisses his feet. 
and, and this story unfolds. And so he's sitting here thinking this, like, there's no way. And as he's in the middle of this spinning, like, what is he doing? How is he allowing this? Maybe even a servant comes to try and separate it, and Simon's going, no, 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 don't. That's my part, but he's saying, no, don't do it. Like, I really want to know what's going on. And in a way, Simon, again, because he's a religious Pharisee, he's someone that knows the law, he's starting to feel a little bit better about himself. I wouldn't do that. My religious status is higher than Jesus now. He's starting to feel better about himself because at first he was a little uncomfortable because people started following Jesus, right? And then in 44, we, re- we read this. Luke 7, 44. Right before that, sorry, I want to say, okay, so it's then turning to, oh, no, sorry, he said, he tells a story. I got to tell this part, dang it. Got to tell this part, okay. So then he turns to Simon in the middle of Simon's thought process, right? And he turns to me, he's like, hey, Simon, I want to ask you a question. And and Simon's like, go ahead, teacher, do it. And he says, a man owes um, a debt, a a lender, 500 denarii, and another one owns 50. So one owns 5,000 bucks, another owes 50 bucks. And they both said they couldn't pay it. And the, the, the lender says, you know what? I pardon it. You're fine. Who would love that lender more? And Simon's like, well, obviously the one that owed more. They felt more grace. They felt more love from that. And, 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 and then Jesus says, well, you've judged correctly. And then he turns to him again. He says, okay, this is 44. Now, here's the slap in the face. He says, um, 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And I just wanted to read real quickly. John Piper has a synapsis, kind of just a point of this. I want to read it word for word, and then I'll finish it up here. As a Pharisee, Simon enjoyed a reputation as a godly man. He had significant theological education, had memorized extensive portions of Scripture, exercised rigorous self-discipline, prayed religiously, and tithed meticulously. The sorts of things men admire. The woman's reputation was sleazy. Her law-breaking was public knowledge. No one mistook her as a servant of God. Though men desired her, no one admired her. Yet in front of all the dinner party guests, Jesus declared that that debauched woman actually loved God much, while the ritually clean Pharisee loved God little. Why? Simply because the woman believed that she desperately needed the forgiveness Jesus offered in his gospel. While Simon didn't, he, he who is forgiven little loves little. This little sentence reveals a mammoth truth for us. We will love God to the degree, to the degree that we recognize the magnitude of our sins and the immensity of God's grace to forgive them. This is the kind of worshiper is the Father seeking for at its essence, true worship is a passionate love for God, not a moralistic rule-keeping or feats of self-discipline. For sinners like us, the fuel of that love is, prof- is a profound realization in the words of former slave trader turned Pastor John Newton that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. See, I think for you and I, we forget what he's done for us. We place a small value on the grace that he has shown us. And therefore, we have no desire to love him obedience because we don't see value in what he's actually done for us. But in Christ, you're a child of God and you have his spirit living inside of you 
so you can walk by it. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing some more. There is never a time when God said, I just want you to crank these rules out and I'll accept you. Never a time he says that. It is always, it is always at first you love me and as a result of that love, there's a desire and a commitment to obedience. See, I think a lot of us just need to remember the fact that, that obedience isn't something that I have to do. Obedience is I do because he loves. Obedience is because I can do it because of his grace. And I think if we forget how much he has forgiven, we will love very little. We will love very little. One of the ways that I think that, that obedience plays out is, is baptism. See, some of us, and this is this may make you uncomfortable. Some of you are like, oh man, I, you know, I was baptized a long time ago and some other belief or I, you know, I never really follow God. Baptism is one of the first steps of obedience to God. It's one of the first steps to say, you know what, God, you asked me to be baptized and therefore out of obedience, I will do this. We're gonna, on August 18th, we're gonna do a baptism. Some of you are riding on some Baptism that really had no power, no weight in your life. Not that baptism has power, but, but I mean, you, you did it just because someone told you to do it and not because you believed who God was. You did it because you just thought that's what you're supposed to do and it wasn't because you recognized how much he has forgiven of you and therefore you're proclaiming what he has done and is doing in you. Baptism is just one of the ways you can be obedient. Some of us in here just need to step into obedience. You recognize your, your grace you recognize what he's done for us and you just, you just need to repent. You just need to say, God, forgive me for forgetting. Forgive me for forgetting what you've done for me and seeing, being obedient as some rules I had to keep as opposed to some way to love the God that has forgiven so much. Let me pray, Father. Thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, commanding us to love you all the while giving us a way to actually do it through your spirit. And I recognize in a room this, this full that every single one of us are going to fail at loving you in some way. Would you remind us of your grace that's lavished on us? But God, for those in the room that continue to run to disobedience, oh, forgive us. Forgive us for, for, for losing sight of the beauty and the, the immensity and the, and the value of what you did for, through Jesus Christ for us. God, forgive us for not loving you. The one who knows us best, the one who loves us best, even when we're at our worst, God. God, I pray that we would be a people that truly love you, a people that strive to grow in our love for you or that aren't complacent where you have us now, God, but, but are working out our salvation as a step to not, not be some legalistic, I'm higher than someone else, but as a step to know more of who you are, to know you better, God, so that we can love you better. God, forgive us forgive us for not loving you at times. God, would you remind us, would you overwhelm us with the value of the grace of Jesus Christ that you've brought to reconcile all things to you, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.